Hey listeners and welcome to the Surf Coast Creators Podcast. I'm your host Ben Hucker. If this is your first time tuning into the pod, then we hope you enjoy today's episode. But what is this podcast all about? Well, we tell the stories of doers, thinkers and creatives on the surf coast in Australia. Why do we do it? Well, we think the surf coast is a melting pot of creative minds from the city, the country and the coast and we wanted to get their stories out there. Each episode is packed full of insight and a good dose of practical hints and tips from our guests. Our guest today is the curator of the world's biggest surf museum based in Torquay. His name is Mr. Craig Gonzo Baird, as people refer to him. So if you're into the history of surfing in Australia, then this is the episode for you. Craig tells us some wild tales of surfing before it became a sport. He also explains how he has managed to avoid producing a resume his entire life. He relies on gut intuition and following his passion to get by. Learn how Craig got a job airbrushing t-shirts for Rip Curl, which started a 26-year career. He's now the head curator of the Australian National Surfing Museum based in Torquay, where he's been for 27 years. Find out how he stumbled into this role as well and the overlap with his job at Rip Curl. We talk about much more, including Craig's passion for art and creativity and his advice for young creatives. Leave us a rating on iTunes after the show, or better yet, share the episode with one friend. That would really help us out. Once again, I'm your host, Ben Hucker. Co-hosting today's episode is Jess Mellington. This is episode number 44 of the Surf Coast Creators Podcast. Enjoy. Well, it's a big warm welcome to our guest for today's episode of the podcast, Mr. Craig Baird. Welcome. Hi, guys. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for taking time out of your day. I should mention as well that co-host Jess Mellington is here as well. Welcome, Jess. Thanks, Ben. Good to be here. Great to have you here. Now... I understand today's your only day off. You work six days a week with the with the museum. No, Sunday Sundays and Mondays, but um, they well, go, Sundays and Mondays. Yeah, they go by they go by pretty quick. Yeah, we really appreciate your time today. We're gonna we get a lot of young, hungry creatives on the podcast, and I feel like we're gonna get a bit of wisdom today and a few stories. So, given your connections and the like through the museum and surfing, it's gonna be a fascinating chat. But just to kick off, we've got seven questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So a little bit of a rapid-fire segment. Sure. It's called Breaking the Ice. Are you ready? Go for it, Ben. <laughs> question number one, where were you born? Uh, in Geelong. Question number two, favourite activity to zone out? Uh, my favourite thing is sitting out in the water. Question number three, this is a good one actually for you. Full-time, do you consider yourself, I guess, a full-time or part-time creative? Yeah, I'm, look, I'm really lucky that um, for most of my working life, I've, I've been paid to, to, to undertake creative endeavours and, and each has sort of fed into the other. Uh, question number four, Jess. Uh, are you a, do you consider yourself a camper or a glamper? Uh, it'd have to be camper, but I'll, uh, I'll expand on that, that I've spent a reasonable amount of my life living out of the back of my car, so, <laughs> so I wouldn't call it glamping. <laughs> your favourite TV series to chill out? I had Foxtel years ago and I started watching um, Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah? So I got about four episodes into it and I haven't seen the rest. So (laughs) so I figured at some point uh, I'm going to be able to catch up on all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, About eight seasons too. I I can't claim that as a favourite, but I'm certainly looking forward to to (laughs) catching up on on all that I've missed out. Uh, Question number six, Jess. Well, you said before we started you don't actually drink coffee. But where would be the first place you go in Torquay to grab cup something? Cup of tea. Cup of tea or <laughs> cafe that you like. I guess the obvious thing is there's lots of places along the, the foreshore where you get you know a glimpse of the ocean and you can sit yeah. there and, and uh, have something to eat and have something to drink. So I'd be, um, I'd be heading, mm. heading there, I reckon. Question number seven. Actually, this is a good one for the museum. I gather it was shut last year, but in spite of that, were you busy during COVID or flat? So we were, we were all working from home. 
Um, I think we were closed for about eight months, eight or nine months. Yep. We'd been closed one day a year uh, for 27 years. Gosh. And as I said, in this case, to be closed for months on end, it was it was pretty unusual. How did the idea come about for a museum? And just to give our listeners a bit of context, it's could you say it's the biggest surf museum in the world? So when we opened, we were one of three surfing museums globally, which is the California Surf Museum, the um, Santa Cruz Surf Museum, and us. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, of course, it's it's grown, um, but we've got the largest footprint of any museum in the world. It was just lucky that the guys that were pushing the the surfing pioneers that were pushing the idea of a museum as a bit of a legacy for themselves, uh, with the support of Surfing Australia, which was based in Torquay at the time, and Torquay, obviously the home of Quicksilver and Rip Curl, uh, even you know the local businesses up and down Bell Street supported the idea of the museum as well. And your ambitions as a creative and artist and all the rest, where did that come about? Were you always uh creative type of kid or does it come from surfing? No, I, I, I always painted at school. I used to drive my family mad. I used to come home from school and, and put the headphones on, listen to music and, and have a canvas on the kitchen table. It was, you know, the canvases were five foot by three foot. There's enormous things. Yeah. And I kind of paint what I was listening to, you know. Oh, yeah. um, so... Uh, Which was what? Uh, um, Led Zeppelin? And- yeah, sort of. Um there was a couple of artists that I, re- I really liked, and they did album covers during during that era. So it was more inspired by their work. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the first painting I ever did, I sold through a, a local um, record shop called Happy Trails in Geelong. All oh, right. And um, the fifty bucks that they gave me for the painting, I spent mostly on a couple of records and and a book called uh, Views by Roger Dean. And um, so it was Roger Dean's artwork that made a huge impact on me as as well as yeah. other things. And um, so, as I said, put put the headphones on and, and paint, you know. And and one of the big lessons there was learning when to stop. Yeah. <laughs> well, on a five foot by three foot canvas, it's hard to know when. Yeah. So you know they were they were pretty busy and there's a lot of stuff in them. But but what it was, um, what it was at the same time was was learning, you know, learning what not to do, learning how to to replicate finishes and things. And yeah. What was really funny is I used to I used to brush things that obviously as soon as I got hold of an airbrush it was like ah oh, you know f- fades and things that were just so much so easy with airbrush yeah. to, to do with a to do with a brush and paint was way harder you know do you want to give us a quick synopsis of a like an airbrush versus a paintbrush a traditional paintbrush um yeah look I know for a long time airbrushes had a pretty bad reputation with serious artists and, mm. and there's a bit of a division but there's some you know there's some amazing artists that, are, that use them and um it's a bit of a street art thing sort of it's got that graffiti connotation doesn't yeah, it yeah yeah it it can be used in a really different way yeah um and that was the thing for me was that um there were certain things that i wanted to do and an airbrush was the easiest way to do it um uh, what's what's funny is all the paintings that i've ever done since you know most of them have have not involved an airbrush um and yet you know sprayed tens of thousands of surfboards so, yeah. yeah so uh yeah that just shows that it's it's a different thing you know and, and what was really funny was um uh quite a few years back i started doing art on canvas and it was exactly the same art that i was doing on surfboards All right. on a canvas and sticking them in an exhibition and, and it was it was seen as art whereas a lot of people struggle to see art on surfboards as art. as art yeah, yeah. it's quite a few local artists that are doing work with <coughs> local board shapers now Jenna Hutchison is one doing a, some artwork with Vanda. 
in town and there's someone else as well. Natalie Martin. Oh, Natalie Martin's done a couple, a couple of boards as well. But uh, yeah, that's it's good to see that happening. But you spent a bit of time at Rip Curl as well. Yeah, well, uh, the um, uh, the transition from um, uh, working on the farm, working in restaurants, and uh, the guy I worked for in the restaurants bought uh, a restaurant down here called the Ida's by the Sea that was on the corner of Anderson Street. It's a beautiful big old house, and. Um, so I was working for him uh, during the evenings there, which meant I had all day all day free. And at one point, I was living in a little place in Boston Road and um, started airbrushing T-shirts. And uh, I'd done a few for my girlfriend and a few friends and people people liked them and, and wanted them. So I'd, I'd started doing just a whole bunch of them. And um, uh, at one point, I went and, store, went and saw Steve Perry, who was the manager of um, Rip Curl, the Rip Curl store. And I just stuck my head in and said, Steve, I've got all these T-shirts. Do you want to stick them in your shop? And at that stage, Ripkell didn't do much clothing. And he was he was like, yeah. <laughs> but but I could see the gears going around as well. So this is back but, in the day when it was just wetsuits. Uh, well, it, yeah. Look, as I said, Ripkell hadn't got seriously into clothing. Mm. You know, for me to be able to stick 200 T-shirts in their shop was, was a yeah. big deal. Was a bit of a big deal. The the other thing too, or the worst thing was that. Because they um, they gave me a few gigs in one hit, you know, I then didn't have time to do the t-shirts, which meant that at some point they were saying, "Give us more shirts," and all I had left were all the rejects, all <laughs> the ones that I was, I was swore were never going to see the light of day. <laughs> and uh, what, what's really funny is um, they ended up in the shop and people bought them, which yeah. I couldn't believe. Yeah. But even funnier is I remember walking down Gilbert Street one day and there was this guy walking walking in the opposite direction wearing one of my shirts, and, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh." My God. <laughs> You know, Not one of the rejects. Yeah, it, it, it had tiger stripes on it. It was just so bad. And uh, did it have the Rip Curl logo on it? No. Just well, well I, most of the ones I did. It's really funny because people, a lot of people in Torquay know me as Gonzo, and that's the reason why is the shirts all had Gonzo written on them. Oh. And, and when I started at Rip Curl, nobody knew who I was, but I was always wearing Gonzo T-shirts. So. Yeah. Self-inflicted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the name stuck. Well, and it's funny, even now, you know, there's some people that ring up the museum and, and they ask for Gons and other people ring up the museum and ask for Craig, so. <laughs> they don't um, know who's who. No. Well, for a long time, it was like people in Torquay call me Gonzo and everybody, everybody from everywhere else would call me Craig, so I knew what was what. So Actually, each T-shirt's like individual in itself, so it was never two of the same. Yeah, and look, the, the process that I was using was exactly the same as, as spraying surfboards. So I was taping up shirts... Um, taping off areas, spraying them, um, and, and as I said, the process was exactly the same. So what was really funny was, as I said, I, I, I said to Steve about putting T-shirts in the shop, and uh, you know he, he went, hmm, okay, do you want to work in the shop over summer? Obviously, I need additional staff, so I got a, a gig in the shop during the day um, as well. And then uh, he's also walked me out to the surfboard factory and said, do you want to paint our surfboards? And uh, oh, wow. I was like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you ended up doing that for how long? Uh, 26 years. Wow. Yeah, wow. so that uh, that overlapped with the museum. Um, I was going to say, 26 years doing that and 20 years at the museum. Yeah, 20, well, 27 at the museum. You're thinking you're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I said there's an overlap. And it, it, yeah. it worked almost perfectly. Um, but I should say that... that the first two boards I did for Rip Curl were so bad <laughs> um, that I was sure they were, I was sure they'd sack me. I was sure they'd just say, "You don't know what so you're doing. To get out of here." And all it was, I was just trying too hard. I was trying trying yeah. too hard to make them too 
complicated and cool and mm. and it was only the fact that I sort of resigned myself to the fact that I, I was out the door and relaxed that yeah. um, the next lot came out you know okay but um, yeah for a long time it was it was really good and, and from a creative perspective the beauty with the factory was we could do anything um, we weren't bound by production processes or, or any of that that you know if we wanted to do this today we could um, and so it was it, it was pure creativity you know that you get shoved in a room there's nobody telling you what to do you know an hour later a board pops out that's unlike any other surfboard anywhere in the world so um which is tough to do now I mean, most boards now we've seen well I, I guess one of the things is that you know there's a lot of fashions in surfing or yeah. there can be um and one of the ones that, that sort of pisses me off is the the resin dip thing because it's just lazy. Yep. It's just a way of putting colour on a board without putting colour on a board, you know. Yeah. So you know, I'm a bit biased, obviously, <laughs> but um, to me, there are two eras that were sort of stand out. One is in the '80s, everyone everybody wanted to look like a pro surfer and just got stickers all over their boards. Yeah. And um, uh, you see them now, and they look, they look pretty funny because a lot of them had a lot of stickers. <laughs> um, but at the same time, people started getting less and less colour on their board. Um, it's funny because today you don't see very many stickers at all. No, if no, any. It, it yeah. gets played the other way, doesn't it? Yeah. People sort of hide it's them. Minimalist. And, yeah. So. Um, Custom colours, minimalist. Yeah. So, so that was that was one of those things that, um, as I said, that um, fashions change, and um, the beauty is we we could actually be way ahead of fashion that we were doing mm. things it's really funny sometimes that the designers from Ripple come over to the factory and see things that we were doing on surfboards and then take them take the idea back to the factory and do them on board shorts of stuff and it oh, was yeah. as i said the creativity that we had or the ability to change yeah at a moment's notice and just do whatever we wanted to do um you know wasn't like you yeah, couldn't replicate that you know? so that's really raw there was no sort of three month <clears throat> approval process and off to the board of directors it was just you basically come up with a design that morning and it was out the door that afternoon. Yeah, but look, it's not all good news. You know, sometimes you do things and you'd stand back and look at them and go, mm, that didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you live and learn, you know. Um, and there's no taking it back with surfboards? No, kind of... no, for a long time. And that was the thing with the first two boards that I did. It was on the phone. You know, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't undo it. Yeah. So um, for a long time, all of the designs and colour that we did was on the phone. Yep. And you've you've got the cost of the the blank, you've got the cost of the shaping, and then I get hold of it. And if I mess it up, yeah, you finished. you can't throw it away. Yeah. You know? So I used to call myself the master of disaster because if things did <laughs> did go wrong, you, you'd have to fix it. You know? Yeah. You'd have to make it look good or make it look deliberate. And uh, yeah, it's it's um it was a pretty good education and a, and a ton of fun. You know. I imagine I'm reading a, a book called Stoked at the moment. I'm sure you've read it. It's just the history and the story of Bob McTavish and all his adventures and his early days and the shaping and all the rest. Like he had similar sentiments about his own designs that were rubbish, according to his words, and kept getting fired from jobs because he was out busy surfing and stuff. And then I've, I've just got up to the part where he gets on the boat to go to Hawaii as a as a stowaway, so I didn't even pay for his ticket. Yeah, yeah. But um, can't wait to finish the rest of the book, but the adventures just sound crazy. Do you think... That sort of still exists, that spirit of innovation and change and adventure in the shaping industry? Uh, look, it's it's interesting. One of the things, uh, I guess one of the things to look at is, is the time that people had to do things. So mm. um, in the 70s, um, 
if you got a board done, it would be shaped, it would be glassed, coloured, however it was coloured, pin lines, uh, sanded, polished, finished. You know, there was a lot of work that went into them. The, the fins were handmade, hand laid up and hand foiled. So there was a lot of work, work that went into those boards. And, and over time, what's happened is there's less and less and less effort yep. and time put into boards. So there are beautiful, beautiful fins from the 70s. They're all laid up colours and, and foiled and, as I said, they're hand, hand done. Well, what happened was uh, in the time that I was um, in the industry is people got to the point where they just didn't have time to do that, you know, that to, to hand lay up a panel and then cut the fins out and then foil the fins and then finish the fins. And, you know, there's, there's a huge separate process involved with all of yeah. that. And that process costs money. So... Mm. Um, you know, you've got a plastic fin that you can plug into a box, <laughs> job, job yeah. done. The, the fact that that same set of fins is put into, you know, 50 different surfboards and yet yeah. it's exactly the same set of fins it just brings up a, a different subject. But it's it's just things changed, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and as I said, probably the biggest thing is just the process of making mm. a board is now a lot shorter. And also the boards are lighter, you know, they don't have the layers of resin and pigment and all the rest of the stuff that, that used to decorate the boards and take up that time. So yeah, it's just different. Well, that actually, some of the older shapers, I'm just looking at your hoodie, which has Mark Richards on the front, one of the greatest Australian surfers of all time and just a pioneer for surfing in Australia, but still shaping. And some of his boards are just so, like, I love those lime greens that he does and, yeah. you know, the kind of 80s type feel, Batman and Robin type feel. Yeah, there's a few times recently where I've been, I've seen photos of his on Instagram, and I feel like ringing him up and going, "Where are you getting your paint from?" Because he, he's he's always loved like colour, and and um, it's conspicuous on some of his boards that they're just super super bright, and I just wonder yeah. what he's using. So one of one of the things here is that because of the climate in Victoria, most often we've been using um, acrylic lacquer, which is just basically automotive paint. Um, okay. And it dries really fast. Um, it, it uses um, paint thinners and, as I said, it dries, flashes off fairly quickly. Um, I know that people in warmer climates can use water-based paints. And um, for us for us here to use water-based paints, we actually had to use hot boxes, which meant that you paint the board and you basically cook it to get all the moisture out of it. All oh, right. Um, and even um, because there's a lot of moisture in the air here, or there can be a lot of moisture in the air here, there were times when we'd pull boards out of the hot box and unless you glass it almost straight away, the things would be sucking moisture back in oh. while uh, while they're sitting on the rack. So uh, it's an interesting thing that in Victoria, you know, there are different processes and things, things that we had to do just simply because they were dealing with a cool climate. Well, yeah, I was going to say, just because of climate. Yeah. There's differences in but, process. But MR's, MR's a thread that, that kind, of, kind of runs through my life. I know a lot of guys at the museum laugh because I'm a huge fan of MR's. And when I was a kid, I wanted to surf like MR. Yeah. Um, the arms out. <coughs> the well, well, I kind of did that anyway. But yeah. um, uh, he was just such a good surfer, you know. Oh, it's incredible. So, of course, you'd want to be surfing like him. But there's a, there's a funny story that I tell people that involves, I think, pretty much all that we've spoken about so far. So the... As we said about buying a, an airbrush when I was in the surf shop, and the first thing that I sprayed with the airbrush was flames, uh, and that was because I'd seen a surfboard that MR had that had flames on it. And I thought, right. "Whoa, that looks cool!" <laughs> it's so, MR. so that flamed MR board is in the museum. And oh, I walk, oh, yeah, I've, I've seen a picture it, of that. Yeah, I walk past it every day, and yeah. and it's like. You know, I, I say to people that surfboard changed my life, and in a way it did. You yeah. Know, that um, if I hadn't bought the airbrush and sprayed flames, 
uh, I would never have got the gig painting. Is that painting. the King Kong board? Uh, it's next to it. Again? So it's just, um, yeah, it's just flames on a board. Yeah. And um, so, uh, and I can't tell you how many flames I've put on surfboards over <laughs> the years. Uh, I love it. I think it got a bit of a reputation. I hope it would because, um, you know, there's lots that I'll do, happily do and not even wonder about, but anybody who wants flames on their boards, I'm like, ooh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just, if you got flames on your board, though, you'd want to know how to surf, I reckon. Oh, you yeah. wouldn't want to be the kook going over the falls. No, no. Well, well, that that story about you know wanting to surf like MR. I had a had a mate. He was a shape a years ago, and they were the instructions that I gave him. You know, I ordered this new board, uh, a twenty, and um, he was like, "What do you want?" And I said, "I want to surf like MR." <laughs> <laughs> and and he made this board. I'll never forget it because it was. Um, I told him I wanted a, a wide, thin tail. Yep. And when I went to pick it up, it had a narrow, thick tail, oh. and I was so off it. And um, uh, he was just like, "Just surf it, shut up and surf it," you know. <laughs> and uh, I was like, "Oh man, it's meant to be wide, it's meant to be thin." And he's just like, "Go surf the board." And um, big lesson, big lesson about shapers because I surfed it and it went unreal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, he knows what he's doing." <laughs> Actually, there's a funny story behind the purchase of that surfboard too, isn't there? With, I think I read in a blog article with you that you had some money saved up. You drove up to New South Wales to, to Mark's shop to purchase the board. And then you got robbed. Is that uh, right? Yeah, that was a trip I did. Um, I think I was 19. Had all your money stolen. Yeah, so I loaded my girlfriend in the car and, and I was going to do a trip, trip up to Queensland and back, just up the coast and surf wherever we could. And... Um, so a few days into it, um, pulled into Newcastle, and uh, first thing on the agenda was to go and visit MR's shop, and he had a whole bunch of boards in the back of his shop, which are, half of them are hanging in the museum now. And, yeah, his King Kong board. So King Kong Iper Stinger, that he, he was runner-up to Michael Peterson in the first Stubbies event. Uh, he wrote it Bells. I think he won the Coke contest on it. You know, it was mm. it was probably at that point one of the most famous surfboards in the world. Yeah. And it's in the rack at the back of his shop for $280. And so... <laughs> Adjusted for inflation. About... Crisis of conscience. You know, I'm like, um, trip to Queensland or buy MR's board. <laughs> <laughs> so I went for a, a surf at Merriweather and, and uh, while I was surfing, I... I pretty much just convinced myself to go straight back to the shop and buy the board but got back to the car the car had been broken into went to the cop station to report that got booked outside the cop station for a parking and parking offense and then oh. driving out of town i got a speeding ticket so it was oh. like it was like newcastle didn't want me there you know <laughs> and of course um king kong slipped through my fingers you know yeah but the funny thing was i wrote him a letter years later and um outlined all of this and uh yeah, MR said that uh, he's, he's got his mum to type a letter out and, and got, I've got this little typewritten letter by MR's mum, you know. <laughs> and uh, This is Richard's. Yeah, so the, the deal was that, um, you know, he said he didn't have any of his old boards so he couldn't sell me one of those and um, he had his templates and he said if, he, if I wanted to do a board, he'd send me the templates and the fin templates and we could make a board. So... Um, yeah, that was that was really cool. But yeah, King Kong's ended up in the museum as well. So that's a cool I walked story. Past it every day, I yeah. wrote a letter and he replied to you. Yeah, and... yeah. Well, I think I wrote him like a three-page letter that was all about, you know, it was about surfing, it was about music, it was about you know the stuff that he used. I didn't realise at that stage that that the boards that he rode 
in the to win his four world championships. He shaped them, painted them, glassed them, sanded them, everything. Yeah. And um, I can't imagine there's too many world champions that mm. that could say the same. No. Yeah. And to give our listeners a bit of context in terms of Mark Richards, because we get a lot of creatives that look tune into our podcast, not necessarily surfers, although surfing you know, is very heavily tied in with what we do. But uh, how does Mark Richards rank on the, on the history of surfing? Well, Surfing surfing Australia did a thing uh, for their 50th anniversary where they um, ranked the top 10 surfers in that 50 years. And uh, MR came out at number one. Wow. Um, he... Um, I guess he was the Kelly Slater of his era, that nobody had won multiple world championships. So, uh, uh, an American surfer, Lynn Boyer, I think had won two. Yep. Um, MO on four on the trot, and uh, nobody had done that. Mm. You know, It was one of those things that after him winning four world titles, everyone was like, well, that'll never happen again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then along Slater. comes a guy called Kelly Slater. You yeah. Know? So, um, Slater wins... Seven, was it? Yeah. Seven, yeah. Yeah. So look, Steph Gilmore and, and Lane Beachley have won world, more world championships than MR. Yep. But MR's a much loved character, I think, because of who he is. Yep. Uh, he's a pretty unassuming um, character. He never never talks himself up. When he when he accepted the award for being you know number one surfer for the last fifty years, um, he confessed that he'd voted for himself, thinking that at least he'll get one vote. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ended up getting number one. Well, you know, so hopefully now he understands the respect yeah. that everybody yeah. has for him. And, and I must say that certainly through his website and, and Instagram, yeah. um, it's obvious that there's a huge amount of people around the world that have a, a ton of respect for the guy. Yeah, he's yeah. got like over 100,000 followers. And I can't remember when I came across him, but I initially thought he was based in Torquay because he just kept popping up on the feed and I thought he must be a shaper in Torquay. And then I looked him up. He's based in New South Wales and he's just huge. Yeah. But I'd say every surfer in Torquay would follow him. Well, I, I think it's it's because of who he is. Yeah. Um, but I think also what he's done and the way he's, the way he's done it. Mm-hmm. But the thing the thing for me, especially as I get older, is I just got a huge huge amount of respect for older surfers that still keep doing it, yeah. you know, because it gets it gets tough for a lot of different reasons. Mm. And I know that MR for a, for a long time had serious back issues, and yeah. for his, so for me to look at him and he's still out there, you know, whacking the top off some waves, yeah, and and doing what he does, which is shaping and and painting surfboards and stuff, and you just go, yeah, that's pretty cool to to know your groove and and still to be able to do it, you know, 50 years down the track, it's pretty mm. cool. Yeah, and even this year with the WSL at Newcastle, it was pretty cool to see him there. And I think he got in the commentary box a couple yeah. of times. So yeah. it was great to hear his stories from the past. It's the only yeah. way you learn about surfing is hearing those stories from the past. Another one, super down to earth, who comes to mind is Simon Anderson, arguably the founder of the Thruster type yeah. concept, but takes no credit for it and, well, doesn't want to never patented it or took any trademarks over it. There's some, some really great characters in, in surfing and, and one of the things that's really funny now because it's kind of turned on its head now is that for a long time, you know, Aussies didn't big note themselves, that that, that was seen as being a really bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you've got these guys that have that have made world-changing, you know, or have had world-changing influence, but at the same time yeah. they're, not, they're not telling anybody about it. And um, that's... Um... 
You'd say that attitude rubbed off on guys like Mick Fanning and Parco and the rest because they're really down-to-earth type of yeah. guys as well. I can't yeah. think of any real big note surface that really big note themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the beauty with character, characters like that is they're entertaining. Yeah. But but whether or not that's sustainable long-term is another thing. Yeah. Know? That there's... Um, yeah, there's a lot of people who make a lot of noise, but um, yeah. there's some some people that have made some serious contributions that that you know are in the background and don't make much noise. Yeah. One of one of the great things through the museum is we've um, a lot of people that we've mentioned, you know, we've been able to sit down and, and record interviews with them. And um, uh, Mr. was a classic because we caught him at a moment where um, he he more or less sat down and said, "Look, I'm so sick of being PC." <laughs> <laughs> I just want to tell it how it is, and, and uh, yeah. So we caught him at a really, really cool time, and um, um, ran through you know lots and lots of things. So we've we've got a challenge on, uh, sorry, we've got a channel on YouTube which is just called Surf World TV. Oh yeah. And um, uh, we've certainly got a lot of lot more material than what we have up there, but it's it's really interesting that um, uh, you know last time I looked at that I think it was 440,000 views. And um, there was one in particular, there's one that we did with Wayne Lynch telling a story about a shark encounter down the coast here. And I know it, it's gone absolutely off. On Victoria's the, coast? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, you don't hear many shark stories down here? No. Well, we heard a few over the years, but yeah, look, through the museum, you know, a lot of kids are really concerned about sharks, particularly if they're about to go and have a surf lessons. Yeah. And we, we tell them that, um, you know, in, in 200 years in Victoria, there's been six people killed by yeah. sharks. It's... Um, there are some states that had that every year, you know. Um, mm. So for some reason uh, in Victoria, it's less of an issue. I guess a smaller population, you know, taking up um, less conspicuous spots on the coast. And uh, but for whatever reason, it's it's such an unlikely thing to happen in in Torquay. I think I think in my life, in my surfing life, there's been two people attacked by sharks, which yep. is a guy that was a diver, I think, down near um, Fairhaven, mm-hmm. and uh, a young guy called Mark Jepson over. The other side of um, Barn Heads. Okay. Um, so you know, it's it's such an unlikely thing that people really shouldn't worry. But what a horrible way to go if you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you'd want to hope it was quick. <laughs> I haven't seen any today. Touch wood, but you keep seeing dolphins. Keep seeing dolphins. I saw a giant fin pop out. Oh, it's sort of about this time last year when those dolphins, that pot of dolphins, oh, yeah. started coming through talking. Yeah. And absolutely packed my ducks, but next so, minute it's fully breached and jumping. So you had Crossy on your podcast yeah. a while ago. I can tell you a funny story about sharks and Crossy. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, Big shout out to Craig too for introducing us to Craig. So I went, I went to school with Crossy. So at school there were there were three Craigs, Craig A, Craig B and Craig C. Are you Ballarat? No, this is um, Ballarat. Um, so full overcast day at um, Raffs in Ocean Grove. Or you know, ocean gravy. Um, not much going on. Little waves, as I said, really weird grey conditions and, mm. and fairly still. Uh, to make it even weirder, there was one little spot in the sky that was almost like a window, a square, almost like a square in the sky, and one little patch of blue. Anyhow, so we're sitting there, not much going on. Crossy's paddled past me, and then turned around, and gone. Oh, I think there's a shark out there. Think. <laughs> <laughs> So I've turned around, and sure enough, there's a fin that's that's travelling, you know, parallel to the to the oh, wow. white water, but it's just starting to turn towards where we are, yeah. and, and I'm just like, oh man! So pulled my feet up. I've done the, you know, try and paddle smoothly and and regularly, and 
everybody else caught a set wave and, and got in and I'm still paddling. Oh my god. All the way to the beach. Like yeah, yeah. So I got to the beach and we're all standing there and couldn't see anything and you know, they were ringing the bell at the clubhouse by this stage and and uh, so we, we hung around for a couple of hours. Didn't you know, looking, didn't yeah. see anything and ended up going back in the water. But yeah, crossies <laughs> crossies uh, run interference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't know what type of shark it was. No, no idea, it's just a big fin. You know? Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, in, what are we talking, 50-something years of surfing, in one, maybe two. maybe a few encounters with, um, I saw a guy fall on a shark at Point Impossible once. Fall right. on oh, one? Yeah, really hilarious. So outside reef when the tide gets a bit full, <laughs> there's a couple of um, uh, sinkholes in the reef. Yep. So I think what, what had happened was this shark had been hanging around in there and has popped up mm-hmm. out of that at a time where a guy's got to the end of the wave and basically fallen off, and he, oh he, he fell on the shark. <laughs> and his mate was on the beach because his mate had already seen the shark, and his mate was going crazy, you know, yeah. and yelling and screaming at this guy. And the guy's paddled, you know, the next 60, 80 metres to the to the beach, yeah. and he couldn't understand what his mate's carrying on about. And he's like, you know, like, <laughs> what are you talking about? He said, the shark, the shark. He said, what shark? He said, you fell on it. He goes, oh, I thought it was kelp. <laughs> And, and, and probably one of those things that the, you know the the, the um, once a shark had been jumped on, it probably took off. Quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It probably got a bigger shock. Yeah. yeah. What is it? But um, there's been a few times where there's been things in the water. There's one time at Outside Reef where it was there's some big thing chasing fish out there. Yeah. And we ended up standing. It was, it was super low tide. And we ended up standing on the reef just looking out to see, going, "What the hell is that?" You know, it wasn't breaking the surface. It was just creating these huge boils. Um, and, um, yeah, so seen a few, um, but never, never encountered any that's sort of threatening. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing the wildlife is something else, especially dolphins and sort of Southern right whale at Ocean Grove last, uh, actually at Rafferty's. And that was just a spin out to see that. And it shocked the hell out of me just to see it's big. I must, I must have been a baby Southern right, but, or a female. I understand they like the soft sand. They like to rub their bellies okay. or something. Yep. Without getting beached. There was, there was <laughs> one morning at Winky where um, it was it was like a Martin Worthington spray on one of those hot butted boards, you know, that um, backlit glassy morning at Winky and I'm fanging along and I realised there was a dolphin just in front of me that was doing oh. doing the same speed and on inside Gosh. the wave. And it was like, ooh, that's a bit special. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were doing that at 13th. What was that, September last year? Just watching them just rip through the wave. Yeah. They're so quick. Yeah. They love the waves more than every us. Every surf you came back from last year, you've seen an animal of some sort, like a dolphin or whale. Thankfully not a no shark No people, yet. but <laughs> just, yeah. Uh, Craig, getting conscious of your time on your day off as well, which we appreciate. But um, how far up the chain at Rip Curl did you go? And do you want to tell us about the overlap with the... Uh, with the museum? How did that come about, being uh, the head curator? <clears throat> so the, the beauty with... Um, with spraying boards at Rippy was that we were we were completely removed from or I was completely removed from from the offices. So what was really funny is we we have people come to the surfboard factory that were basically escaping the offices for ten minutes. I have people come into my room and this is toxic nasty stuff, you know. The, and they'd stand there going, <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm wearing a mask for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, Did you get the itchies as well? Uh, Bob McTavish talks about the itchies. Yeah, less so. The, I know the foam in the early days was was really bad, and also um, it gave off you know 
toxic chemicals. The, yeah. the, um, um, the early blanks gave off cyanide. Um, oh, wow. So you wouldn't want to be Gosh, standing no. around breathing that. Um, so, yeah, look, by the time I was doing it, the formulations were different and, and it was certainly not, you know, not ideal, um, but uh, a, a different environment to what the early guys had had to do. But it was just fun, you know, that we'd um, – I'd just get my head down and do stuff. And the other thing too was just that is that there were no – there were no controls. There was no um, regimentation. As long as the work got done, pe- people didn't care how it got done. You yeah. Know? So I could front up at 10 o'clock in the morning. I could front up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. As long as the boards were next, ready to be glassed the next day, people didn't care. Probably the, the worst one was um, we had an order for Japan and we had um, uh, I had this one dropped on me. So I was like, uh, we need 24 boards for Japan by tomorrow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm like, Okay, all sprayed. I'm like, rightio. So at that point, an average spray would take an hour. You know, so this was like 24 hours of work. <laughs> and, and it was my brother's engagement, um, yeah, engagement party the next day. So I did 24 wards in 24 hours. Oh wow, you got it done. And walked out of there and went to my brother's engagement party. I was a zombie. I was yeah. like, <laughs> uh, But they got done, and. Um, you know that was that was pretty crazy. But yeah, we used to get we used to get all sorts of crew come down from the from the shops, and of course, lots of people that were famous surfers that were visiting yeah. Rip Curl or getting wetsuits or whatever would come into the factory and talk to Russ or or um uh you know even just some of the shapers that we had go through the place over the years. Um, Bob McTavish was working there at one stage, and um, there was a whole raft of you know famous names that were working in the room next to me, and I'd paint their boards, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, that would have been awesome. And you must have been pretty close with Doug Warbrick and Brian Singer? No, not really. They were just um, sort of off in the background? Yeah, um, it was really funny because I mentioned about working in the shop and I'll never forget um, Cindy coming in one day. And uh, especially when you're young, this is this is pretty confronting, but he's basically said, you know, he's held this wetsuit in front of me. He's gone, what do you think of these? I've looked at him <laughs> and I've gone... Do you want me to tell you what you want to hear? Do you want me to tell me what I'm thinking? And I realised that what he wanted was was what I was thinking. So yep. you know, I just gave him some honest feedback, and um, um, he was pretty cool. He was um, pretty intense, but pretty cool. And Claw's just like the world's biggest grommet. Yes, yeah. he, he just loves it. You know. Yeah. Um, Claw's the one that dances up and down and claps yeah, and yeah. quite animated. Yeah, but he's he's one of those guys that if you if you dig. He's he's been deeply involved in surfing for a long, long time, yeah. you know. And the foundations for a lot of stuff that exists now, he's he's been involved with. You know? Right from the get go. Um, yeah. you know, on, on a national basis, on an international basis, pro surfing. You know, he's one of those guys that, um, behind the scenes, I get the feeling he's done way more than people will ever will ever know. Yeah. Know? Um. And, and doesn't care that they don't know. <laughs> Even all the accessories like surf watches and all the rest as well. Well, I, I think that's a product of, of gathering that group around them, of, yeah. of surfers, creative people, and saying we want products that serve surfers. And, um, you know, I mean, their, their claim used to be by surfers for surfers. And for a long time, that was very, very true. Mm. Uh, and to me, their legacy is is wetsuits. They're, their wetsuits are just fantastic, flexible functional warm you know a modern wetsuit's just such a cool thing compared to yeah how they used to be and they work um but anyhow i was working at a mate cambo's place and cambo was in the same classes cross oh. and i and um 
there's a guy called Tom Wilson who was um, involved with Surfing Australia that was looking over my shoulder while while I was working. And Tom's just gone, oh, you've got reasonable communication skills, haven't you, Gons? And I've gone, uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and he's gone, oh, you should go in and talk to Steve Robbo at the museum. I've gone, okay. So... Um, so I went and talked to Steve Rollo, and at that stage, as I said, they were sort of transitioning away from the Surfing Association being based in the museum, and they were looking for a few staff. I was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time, and stuck my head in and spoke to Robbo, and Robbo's gone. Got the job. Off you go, young man. Wow, so 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, well, 20, 27, 27 years. How old? So the museum's 27 years Yeah, old. so the museum opened in, in December 1993. Yep. And I think I started about six months later. Wow. So basically yeah. from the from the get-go. Yeah. So um, lots of water under the bridge and lots of stuff done. And, and um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very different beast to, to how it was when we opened. Uh, it was yeah. designed in the 80s. And, of course, it looked like it <laughs> was designed in the 80s. And um, so the challenge has been to, to um, you know, keep – keep some fresh stories in there for people. And the, 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 in, a, in a sense, our mission is the same, which is to tell the story of Australian surfing to, to visitors, which whether they be Australians having a bit of a trip down memory lane. Yeah. Or what's more surprising is there are times when we get, um, you know, 75 to 80% international visitors. So wow. Obviously, that won't happen this year. Yeah, um, not for a while. But there are times when the people coming through the door are coming from countries that don't necessarily have... Surfing. A connection to surfing cultures yeah. or or anything, and for a lot of those people, they arrive in Torquay and realise it's a bit of a different place. Yep. Yeah. And this provides the background to to why it's such a different place. Mm. You know. Yeah. From that point of view, it's so important, isn't it? To yeah. tell that story. Yeah. Well, I I think um, probably the biggest change in the in the last twenty something years has been our ability to share those stories. That in the past, it, it a museum was a place that you had to go and visit. Yeah. And the thing now, I was mentioning about um, YouTube, you know, is we can take stories and share them with a global audience. And, you know, there's a there's a broader ongoing discussion with museums around the world about exactly what museums are. And, and of course, um, that conversation is part of it, is how, how you package and share stories and do people have to visit the museum and yeah. and all of that. So it's it's really interesting. But the bottom line is we've, we've got a huge amount of resources in terms of content and to, you know, and this is my job, to understand what it is and how it fits and be able to describe it and share that with people. is um, It's a really, really cool thing. Oh, it'd be amazing. It sounds like the coolest job in the world, just talking surfing all day and putting together all the stories and content. And I, I moved to Torquay three years ago, and one of the first places I went was the Surfing Museum, just to get the sense of history of Torquay and the, the spirit of surfing and all the rest as well. So... Thank yeah. you for putting it together. <laughs> well, no, it's not, not not me. I arrived and, and the thing was already uh, already set up and running. But yeah, over over the years we've we've squeezed a lot of stuff in there, and yeah, uh, yeah that's the biggest challenge for us now is we have a limited amount of stay space and a huge story that keeps growing every day. Yeah. You know, and uh, so the ch- the challenge for us, and this is as I said, what we've been discussing in terms of planning is is what's the story that we tell? How do we tell that story? Yeah. And what elements from surfing history do we present to, to mm. assist that? You know? I remember one story I was fascinated. It was a guy, 
He lives down the coast. He's kind of off-grid, bit of a lone character, but he was an unbelievable surfer. I can't think of his name. I think he even won quite a few major events and all the rest. But he ended up quitting and just forgot about professional surfing and all the rest. Didn't want to make a dollar from it. Yeah. Is that ringing a bell? Well, one of the things... <laughs> well, it's a, it's an, not an uncommon thing. One of the things that we missed out on with COVID was last year was the 50th anniversary of the world titles oh. coming to Torquay, um, of Torquay and Bells in 1970. Yep. And, and that event was a, a real turning point because... Um, there was a real split between um, people that saw surfing as a, a, a sport and a business and, and heading down that track and people who absolutely thought 180 degrees to that, that surfing was art, that surfing was self-expression, that surfing was, you know, couldn't be put through that filter, that yeah. competitive filter. Um, so there were a couple of guys that arrived for that contest in 1970, took one look and, and bailed, and, t- and a couple of those guys were the two of the best guys in the world. You know, it's it's a really interesting thing because there were people at that contest that were, were talking it down. There were people that were saying, this is terribly uncool, but then they'd put on coloured shirts and paddle out and try and beat the next guy. Yeah. And so it, it went through a, a bit of a identity crisis. But at the same time, what that event did was provide um, a real boost for what was, you know, a couple of surf companies that were only a few months old at that point. So, yeah. So... That's the thing of timing, you know. In this case, you've got Ripcurl and Quicksilver that have become sort of like a little serious business and they get the best surfers in the world in their backyard and all of the connections and all of the stuff that grows out of that, you know. So what it did was provide a huge shot in the arm for a, a little surf in, a cottage industry yeah. in Torquay that, that within decades became huge global brands. You know? dollar business. Yeah. Actually, one question... Like there's a real creative arts community now in Torquay. It's quite healthy and thriving. And we interview a lot of guests on the podcast that are artists and creatives. Was that the case back then or was it just surfing back then? Um, no, I think that's always been the case. Certainly, uh, I know there's been some people involved with Rip Curl over the years that, um, you know, the, the stories have kind of been forgotten in a way. There was a guy, a leather worker, a guy called Samo, that, that years later I, I was talking to one of the guys in the factory about needing some some leather um, bits for my car, and he said, "I'll go see Sano," and I was like, "You know who, what?" And and then of course I heard the story. So we've got a, a hand-tooled rip curl um, visor made out of leather that, as soon as I saw it, I've gone Sano. Uh-huh. And you know we were talking earlier about having the time to do things. In this case, in terms of products, a handmade leather product that's yes. that's got rip curl written on it. Like even at the museum, you know, we had a um, a community art gallery there for some time, and at that, at that stage, I think we were the only publicly accessible gallery space in Torquay. And so you go, that's not that long ago, but um, thankfully things have, have moved on. That there's more spaces. There's because the bottom line is, if you if you're creative, mm. there's no point in being creative and sitting sitting in your own lounge room and nobody knows about that. You know, yep. the, yeah. the only way that you can you can share that is to to get out and about somehow. I mean, obviously there's lots of uh, electronic ways of doing that now but yep. uh, as I said for for artists if there's no gallery space you you can't do exhibitions you know yeah. I, I, I did surfboards for a very long time before I ever did an exhibition and it was a totally different thing putting yeah. stuff up on a wall and that same thing of, of curating a bit of a story and and a theme running through the stuff and yeah and um, but then also providing that opportunity for a lot of other local artists 
um, because it was a perfect combination that we have visitors to the area that are mostly our customers and they were getting exposed to local artists. So it was, it was perfect. Before we start to wrap up the podcast, Craig, just wanted to ask you about installations within the museum. Have you got a favourite? Uh, well, being a bit of a Mark Richards fan, we're, we're really lucky that uh, you know, we're supported by people like him and um, Simon Anderson, Lane Beachley, and, and so uh, Terry Fitzgerald. We've got a great, um, great little corner of Terry Fitzgerald's stuff, which is really colourful, which is cool. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, look, Mark, Mark Richards' stuff, um, for me, it's inspirational. It's a touchstone back to a, a different time. It's stuff that inspired me when I was younger, and as I said, I get to look at it every day. It's... I was about to say you get to have your morning coffee and stare at it, but you won't be having a coffee. You'll be <laughs> having something else. No. Glass of water. Glass of water. <laughs> I guess one final question, Jess. Um, what What has been your biggest challenge to date since, like, working in the museum? Just to narrow it down. Um, that's a really interesting question, uh, and, and the same thing. It keeps changing. You know that that the museum was designed and or conceived and designed as a as a permanent display it wasn't meant to be changed, changed you know the only problem is that a few years in of course some stuff starts looking old we had we had a lot of spaces on the wall so of course stuff starts going up on the wall and and now the problem for us is is the the other end of that we've got so much stuff you mentioned the redevelopment of board riders mm. you know we ended up having i think about 60 surfboards um, loaned to the museum that, that were on display in that space Oh wow! So we got a real boost to to the number of boards that we had to display, but also the quality of the boards that we had to display. We had pieces of the puzzle that were missing that that that, that collection filled. So the challenge has, has been to incorporate that stuff, but also now I guess um, more generally the thing for us is to uh, present better quality items that tell a bigger story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, more important, more better condition, um, you know, and that's that's a, a good thing to do, you know. That's the sort of problem you want to have. Yeah. Lots yeah. and lots of good stuff and choose to between it. You know? Actually, do you get lots of being, like yeah, just a flood of people saying, "Hey, I've got Mick Fanning's board. He won the uh, I don't know, he won Trussell's with it back in the day, <laughs> and it's been sitting I, in the back of the car." And... I wish. Uh, <laughs> it's it's really interesting because a lot of modern stuff. Um, it's like our archive. We've got we've got photos up to a point, um, but what happened was when surfing became a pro sport, people became more protective of what they've got and, and what happens with it. And certainly, you know, we'd like to have the museum right up to date and have Steph Gilmore represented and and Mick Fanning and you know literally have it up to right now, you know. But um, uh, the way that it's structured now, who owns the surfboards, what happens with the surfboards. Mm. Uh, it's very different. So when when people like Lane Beachley, you know, Lane's stuff, uh, it's fantastic because it's from that source and and tells their story. And and this people like that are smart too. They understand that that, that will be seen by thousands of people, mm. and that it it keeps their story alive. You know, um, but yeah, it's 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 a challenge to to consolidate all of that stuff yeah. into the space that we've got, and um, and pick and choose which bits go up there to tell the stories so actually one final question touch wood no natural disasters or emergencies or the rest but if in the case there's an emergency and you had to take one board which would it be oh one board's a bit cruel um 
So, it, it, look, it's really funny because I actually use that if the place is on fire, what do you grab? Um, so we've got two of the first four boards in Victoria on display in the museum. Two of the first four? Yeah, so wow. these four boards were imported from Hawaii just over 100 years ago. Um, is that when the Duke was coming out? Well, they, they were bought from Duke. Yeah. So a guy from Geelong went to Hawaii. He spent six months there learning how to surf, a guy called Lewis White. Uh, he bought four boards from Duke and he came back to um, came back to Geelong. He lived in Geelong and would surf at Anglesey and Lawn. So we've got photos and footage of these boards being surfed uh, at Lawn. Um, and all four of them still exist. So we've got two in the museum. One was built into a house in Lawn as a mantelpiece and it's still there to this oh, day. Wow. Um, and there's a, th- a fourth one that ended up um, going via a couple of, of different sources, but it ended up um, in Queensland. And we'd, we'd actually lined it up to become part of a centenary exhibition that we had planned just as COVID happened. And, and this board was on a truck on the way down the Hume. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy rang us up from Albury and he said, look, I've got a family. I'm really worried they're going to close the borders. Um, I'm not going to bring their board down. I'm turning around and going home. All right. So the the third board never made it down here for the reunion, and of course the museum was closed because of COVID, and that whole exhibition didn't happen. But um, they're they're pretty high on the list, as is um, MR's board, Simon's thruster. Um, yep. You know, there's some the original thruster. Yeah, there's some boards in there that that are irreplaceable. Well, that's fascinating, and actually that the footage on YouTube that you guys put out. Is that the one with the, the red gum boards? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We we did a little clip. It's really funny because um uh uh guy from guy from Lawn um found footage on the at the tip, basically rescued this footage from the tip. And um <clears throat> uh so we've ended up doing a, a bit of a clip of that. We we actually took um just the surfing elements from that and put it together and we've stuck it on Facebook a couple of times and go it goes mental. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because it, it absolutely shows how surfing started in this part of the world. Yeah. You know, it's it's such a cool thing. Um, I watched that short clip on YouTube before with the guys just heading down the, the Great Ocean Road, yeah, down yeah. to Lawn on yeah. the old dirt track. You, yeah. can see, you actually recognise some of the points in the road. Yeah, that's right. So, look, there's, there wasn't a lot of surfing and the, the quality of the surfing that's not happening, but but that's sort of irrelevant because that is the beginning of the story. Yeah. You know, and and for that reason, those boards are are a huge part of of um, the story that we tell in the museum as well. Well, it sounds like I've got to get back and see it all again. Yeah, any time. Would have uh, a lot would have happened in three years, so I've got to get back. Yeah. Well, look, one of the one of the things in us changing ex- exhibitions, which is really funny, is a lot of our visitors, particularly overseas travellers, uh, are unique visitors. They'll visit the museum once and and head on their way, you know. So for us to be changing things up, um, there's only a few groups of people that really get to appreciate that. So school teachers that bring groups in regularly uh, are great because they realise what we've changed up and yeah. and how it's different. Uh, but, yeah, for a lot of people, it's, um, you know, we'll put a lot of time and effort into researching and, and mounting yeah. new exhibitions and things, and, and we get a fresh audience. The school teachers must love it, the ones that come in regularly. We had to go to Sovereign Hill every year in Ballarat. So I would have much rather have gone to the surfing museum. <laughs> it's uh, Craig, fascinating chat. We've crammed in like a 30, 40 year career in a, what, just over an hour for a podcast. So really appreciate your time today. I don't think we've even scratched the surface. No, but there's, there's more. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do a part two. 
And uh, yeah, giving us a fascinating insight and some stories there about Mark Richards and some big names like Simon Anderson and others. So really appreciate it. Hope uh, you had some fun. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. But where can we go to keep following the, the story of the museum? Oh, okay. So uh, look, one thing we didn't mention is that um, we did a project with Google a few years ago. So via their um, Google Arts um, setup, they, they did a thing a few years ago called... Um, uh, Great Sporting Land, which is all about Australia and sports. They initially started looking at museums, but then realised that, that Australia's passion was sports. So it's about sporting museums and organisations. Um, and we've got a, a fairly big presence on that. So um, go to Great Sporting Land and click on the Australian National Surfing Museum logo. Uh, you can have a look at about 200 things, 200 objects from oh, our nice. collection. Uh, there's a 3D walkthrough of the museum. Yep. Um, there's some stories that we've taken from exhibitions as well. We did an exhibition a while ago called Surfers, Their Stories, which looked at 12 very diverse surfers from around Australia. I think the youngest one was eight years old and the oldest one was 82. All right. <laughs> and from uh, Sunshine Coast to Warrnambool. And uh, so you can explore you know, some really different stories of people that are approaching surfing from very, very different angles. Yeah, that sounds um, cool. Yeah, that's cool. Um, we've got, uh, of course, the Facebook page, which we update pretty much daily. And yep. that's uh, that's a ton of fun, and as well as being educational. And uh, uh, inst- an Instagram present as, as well as the the uh, channel on YouTube, which is just called Surf World TV. Oh, very nice. I'll check those out. We'll put in a few links, Jess, into our social media. Uh, you can follow Surf Coast Creatives on Facebook or Instagram as well. And then there's the website surfcoastcreatives.com where you can find a list of all the other podcasts that we have running plus a a blog series and the mini masterclasses coming up. Yes, very cool. We've got a lot coming up in terms of mini masterclasses and the rest, but um, we'll put in some links to the Surfing Museum is what I meant before on our social feeds. But otherwise, Craig Gonzo Baird. Did you say beard or bed? Bed. It's it's really funny. It's a five-letter name, and it's actually the, the dude that invented TV was a guy called John Logie Bed, which, yeah. which is why the Logies are called the Logies. But it, all the time, I have to spell my name for people. Craig Bed, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a great episode, and I hope a lot of people have got a lot out of that. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much thank for your time. You. Cheers.